chapter 11. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I, I, I'm not going to spend as long sometimes as I normally do on this, because we just spent a lot of Wednesday night talking about this um, and the whole purpose of it and, and kind of the, the, the idea behind the Lord's Supper. Uh, but it's so important, and um, what a tremendous thing this is. Um, obviously, at the risk of us getting bored with this, um, you know, the message is the same. There's, there's not much that, there's nothing that changes. There's, there's only, the Lord's Supper is only designed for one thing, or really two things, and that is to, for us to be in fellowship with the Lord and for us to remember what He's done for us. And in Matthew chapter 26, you don't need to turn over there, but that's where the Lord's Supper was first instituted, uh, the night before Jesus was crucified. He had what's known as the Last Supper with His disciples, and in Matthew 26, verse 26, and it says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. I can imagine that the disciples probably were like, what is he talking about? Right? Jesus, Jesus told them many times that he was, he was going to die, he was going to raise up again in three days. Of course, they, you know, he, you know, he, said, he said something about this temple. You know, they're going to destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. And so they're like, oh, he's, the temple's going to be destroyed, but Jesus is going to come back and he's going to build a temple in three days. They thought he was talking about the physical temple, not his body. And so many different things that they just didn't understand, and they proved that when Jesus Christ came came back from the dead, and they saw him, and they said, wow, you're alive, you're back. Now are you going to set up your kingdom on this earth, right? Just prove that they really didn't have any idea uh, what Jesus was talking about. We have the benefit of, of, of hindsight being 2020. We can look back, we can read in the Bible, we can read the entire story, and we kind of get a bird's eye view of it, and we can see how all of those things fit together. The disciples, they didn't know that, right? They, they, they were... They were there at a time when everything was just kind of up in the air and everything was, you know, uh, happening in real time. They didn't have the benefit of being able to look back and see it. But can you imagine what Jesus is, what, what they must have thought when Jesus was saying these things? They didn't know that he was getting ready to die the next day. They knew he was going to die. He had told them that he was going to die, but they didn't know it was going to be the next day. They were just having a Passover meal. This is something that they did every single year to commemorate Exactly what I talked about, about the, the blood being put on the doorpost and the death angel passing over. And they celebrated that every single year, the Passover. That's what they were doing. Jesus had told them to get this upper room, get it ready. We're going to eat our Passover meal together and all this stuff. And then he says, he, t- he, he, he takes the bread and breaks it and he says, this is my body. And then, and then he gives them, you know, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to him and said, drink you all of it. This is my blood. Could you imagine what they must have been thinking? And then he died. They saw how they broke his body. They saw how the blood was shed. They saw the blood and the water come out when they shoved that spear into his side. They saw all of that happen. And then maybe all of this from the night before made sense to them. And that's when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. But the Apostle Paul very plainly tells us that the Lord's Supper is a memorial. He says, this do in remembrance of me. Now, we don't have a, a lot of room in the front of our auditorium, and so we don't have a, a big communion table down here and everything else, but a lot of churches do have that. And on the communion table, you see that those words written, this do in remembrance of me. Why is that? It's to remember what Jesus Christ did for us. It's to remind us of what Jesus Christ did for us. And that's the whole purpose of the Lord's Supper. Now, there's some requirements for that as well. 
uh, the requirements are number one, and we see this. Actually, I had you turn to 1 Corinthians 10, but go back into the chapter before that. And, uh, I had you turn to 11, go back into chapter 10, because the requirement, first of all, is that an individual has to be born again. You have to be born again. You have to be saved. You have to know Jesus Christ as your Savior if you're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. He says in verse number 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Well, what's he talking about there? Well, that's where the word that we use, communion, we're going to do communion tonight. Well, that's what it's talking about. Well, what does communion mean? Communion means togetherness. It means, it means basically unity and oneness, if you will, right? And he says, we all have that oneness in the bread of life, in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it, for we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. What is that one bread? Well, Jesus Christ said uh, uh, several times, I am the bread of life, Right? That's what Jesus Christ said that he was. So we're all partaking of that one bread. That means that we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior. Then there's other passages that talk about that as well, but I think this is about as clear as it can be, and it's close to 1 Corinthians 11, which is where we see the whole uh, institution of the Lord's Supper. Um, but then the second thing is that you have, to be, uh, you have to be baptized in order to partake in the Lord's Supper. And that's what we talked about last Wednesday night, the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it has to be done in that order. Baptism does not save you, so you have to be saved, and then you have to be baptized, and then you can partake in that Lord's Supper. And in Acts chapter 2, and verse number 41, we see that. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. You're there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse number 20. And this is Paul basically giving them uh, instructions for how the Lord's Supper is to be conducted. Verse 20 says, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Basically, what he's saying is you're not, you're not doing a big Passover meal. You're not doing the same thing that, that they did at, uh, when the Lord's Supper was instituted. Uh, verse 33, wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. The rest will I set in order when I come. This is not a meal. Well, that's why we don't have all the tables set up and, and, and dishes out and everything else. It's because it's, this is just a memorial. This is just something we're, do, we're doing to remind us of what Jesus Christ did. But then the last thing, so you have to be saved, you have to be baptized, and the last thing is that you have to be in fellowship with the Lord. An individual that's going to partake in the Lord's Supper must be in fellowship with the Lord. And I've said this many times when we take communion. What a great plan this is that God instituted. He said, you better do it. But he said, you better not do it unworthily. You better do it in fellowship with the Lord. That, and, and that really it involves striving as, as much as we know how to live in obedience to the Bible and to carefully confess your sins before God. And for the most part, we know what those sins are. We, we commit them many times willfully. We make a conscious decision. Now, sometimes, you know, uh, we look back and we say, wow, I, I guess I didn't realize, but that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And, and God convicts us of something that we have done. But many times, most of the time, that's not the way that it is. Most of the time, it's, well, I knew that was wrong and I did it anyway. I shouldn't have done it. That's, that's what needs to be confessed, right? First Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, 
with such an one know not to eat. He's talking about eating the Lord's Supper there. And that's a lot of things there, man. If, if, somebody, is, if somebody is in out-and-out out sin, then they ought, to, they ought not to be taking the Lord's Supper. That's what he's talking about. Back there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says in verse number 27, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That's, that's some heavy guilt. Well, what does unworthily mean? Well, you're taking the Lord's Supper and you're not saved. Taking the Lord's Supper and you're not baptized. Taking the Lord's Supper and you're not in fellowship with the Lord. Verse 28, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning, not caring about the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Boy, if, if what he's saying is if you look inside Figure out what you need to get right. Figure out what you need to change. Do what God wants you to do. Get those things right with him. Then we judge ourselves. Then God doesn't have to judge us. He's saying you better do this. This do, this do. That's a command. Do this in remembrance of me. But you better not do it unworthily. And that's a very, very strong uh, um, condemnation that God gives for those who do take the Lord's Supper unworthily. Now, turn over, if you will, keep, keep your finger there in 1 Corinthians 11. We're coming back. But I want you to see this in 1 John chapter 1. Because in 1 John chapter 1, how do you, how do you get things right with God? What is the, what's the process, if you will? Well, I, I know that I've probably got things in my life that, that are not great. I know that I'm pro probably not really in fellowship with the Lord. Uh, I've got a lot of things that... that um, you know, that, that, are, that really are unconfessed. And, and listen, you know, the more specific we are with the Lord uh, doesn't mean that we get more forgiveness, but it shows him how sorry we are for those things when we're specific about the things that we are confessing before him. And listen, an, another thing is, it, you know, it doesn't do any good for you to confess those sins to a person unless... Sometimes it's necessary for you to get right. You know, hey, you, you, you wronged this person. You stole something from them or you did this to them or whatever else. And hey, the whole process of getting right is going and making that thing right. Look, look at the story of Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus realized that he had stolen from all those people. He got his heart right, but he didn't just say, whoo, that's taken care of. I'm forgiven. No, he went back and he repaid them fourfold because he felt so guilty about what he had done. Now, he wasn't doing that to get the sins forgiven. He was doing that to make that restitution. And sometimes that's necessary. But the only thing that we really need to do is confess these things to God. 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I think this is interesting for a couple reasons. Number one, this book, 1 John, was written to Christians, right? In verse 8, we skip over often. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There are those who believe that we can, that we can reach sinless perfection in this life. And it's not possible. We are human. We're flesh. We're never going to be perfect. We're never going to be sinless. And he says very plainly there in verse number eight to Christians, if we say that we're sinless, then we're deceiving ourselves, we're lying, and, and there's no truth in us at all. But 
Verse number 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, another interesting passage. Turn back over to Psalm 51. Most of you will recognize this passage, I believe. But Psalm 51 uh, really is, is the song that we just sang, cleanse me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. That comes directly from the Psalms. But you know David? David, boy, what a, what a sinful uh, thing David did. I, w- I wouldn't say what a sinful life David lived. But boy, David did some things that were more horrendous than what most people would ever consider doing, let alone actually doing, right? David committed adultery, and then to cover that adultery, he had somebody murdered. I mean, David did some things that were, that were pretty horrendous, and that fellowship with God was broken, but David's heart was broken over what happened, and we see that in Psalm 51. I don't have time to read the entire thing, but David just cries out to God. He says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tre- tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Somebody, somebody that doesn't feel the guilt of sin has a questionable salvation. If you say you're saved and you don't feel guilty when you sin against the Lord, I question whether or not really you're saved or not. David says, though, in verse number two, wash me throughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. David realized the wickedness of his sin. A lot of times we say, oh, God, I'm sorry. I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. No, David's heart was broken. And that's the same way that our hearts ought to be before God. Our hearts ought to be broken for, for the things that we do against him. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desireth truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Verse number seven, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. You wash me, he says, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. That's what it means to be in fellowship with the Lord. That's what it means to have your heart right with him a heart that's broken over that sin, a heart that's broken over the fact that God's heart is broken over our sin. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's the requirements. You have to be saved, you have to be baptized, you have to be in fellowship with the Lord. And again, I said this on Wednesday night, I've said this many times before, I don't know your heart. You could pretend all your life that you're saved and you may not be. And I could give you communion every single time we, we do the Lord's Supper, and you might be lying to me, and I don't know. You might not be in fellowship with the Lord. I can't see your heart. I don't know if you're in fellowship with the Lord or not. And that's why I leave the decision to you. You have to decide, where am I? Where do I stand? Have I been saved? Have I been baptized? Have I gotten my heart right with God? Am I in fellowship with him? That's where you have to make that decision. And when we pass this out in just a little bit, if you, if you don't meet those requirements, then let that thing pass you. You don't want to take the Lord's Supper unworthily. Now, that's not something you say, well, I, I'm not worthy to take it. I, I can't do it now, so I guess I'll just never take the Lord's Supper. No, the whole point is get saved, get baptized, get right. That's the whole point. But if, you, if there are things that you know that have to be gotten right with the Lord, then put that off, pass it. Don't take the Lord's Supper unworthily. 
But it's, it's about being in fellowship with the Lord. But the second thing then is, is uh, to remind us of what the Lord has done for us. And we see, I, I go over this every time, but I think it's worth going over every time because we see, first of all, the backward look. It reminds us of the cross of Jesus Christ, reminds us what he did for us. And that's the whole point of why we're doing what we're doing. First Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, talking about the bread, and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. What are, we, what are we remembering? What are we looking back on? The death of Christ, right? His body that was broken, his blood that was shed. Then we have the look around, verse 25. Uh, again, it says, after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. says it again in verse 26. As often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. That is a plural word. You all. We say y'all, right? That's how, that's how if, if this was written in Southern, that's what it would say. Y'all do show the Lord's death till he come, right? This is all of you together. And so when we're talking about the look around, we're reminded that we are a part of a body. We are a part of the body of Christ. We are a family. We're a family of families. And that we're not just individuals going through this world as Christians. We are doing this together. That's why he says, when you come together to do the Lord's Supper, it's because that's something that we should be doing collectively, not individually. We see also then the forward look, first, verse 26, for as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. He's coming back. Jesus Christ is coming back for us. He went back up into heaven, but when he went back up into heaven, he said, hey, I'm coming back for you someday. Be ready. Be prepared. Be watching. I'm coming back someday. You keep doing this and remember what I did for you, looking forward to the time when I'm coming back for you. And then also, as we already mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, well, I'm not going to read it again because we already read it, but it's the inward look. We're supposed to look within ourselves and judge our own spiritual condition before the Lord. The Lord's Supper reminds us of, of just what a, uh, 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 every single believer, every single person that's saved, uh, of the glorious sacrifice by which we are redeemed back to God, right? Without that sacrifice, without that shedding of blood, without his body being broken, I mean, you look at everything that Jesus Christ went through leading up to the time that he was actually put on the cross and crucified. He was whipped 39 times with a, with a cat of nine tails. That cat of nine tails was, was leather straps that were, that, were, that were embedded with glass and rocks and all kinds of sharp objects, and they whipped him 39 times. They say that if somebody was whipped with a cat of nine tails 40 times, it would kill him. And so the ultimate punishment that they could give somebody would be to bring them right up to that brink of death. 39 times he was whipped with that cat of nine tails. They ripped his beard out. Could you imagine having your beard ripped out? They put that crown of thorns on his head, mocking him. Oh, you're the king, aren't you? Oh, what a great king you are. If you're such a king, let's put a crown on your head. And they took that, that crown that was made out of thorns and shoved it down on his head. The Bible says that his visage, his, his, his image was so marred that it was hard to even tell that he was a man hanging on that cross. And not only that, but they did everything they could to embarrass him. They took all of his clothes and they hung up there naked on the cross. For all of those hours that he hung on the cross, bearing our shame, bearing our guilt, he never would have had to die on the cross had it not been for my sin. Never would have had to die on the cross had it not been for your sin, but he did it because he loved us so much. That's what we're remembering. His body was broken. 
He was spit on. He was dying of thirst. I thirst, he said, when he was on the cross. And what did they do? They took a sponge and they filled it with vinegar. And they stuck it up there to, oh, here, have a drink. Here's some vinegar for you to drink. Bad enough when you're not thirsty to taste that vinegar. But let alone when you're dying of thirst and you've got all these open, gaping wounds on your body. Could you imagine how that must have felt as they pushed that up against his lips and the, all, the, all the dried blood and all of the, the open wounds and everything else probably just burned as they pushed that up to his mouth. And then they nailed him through his hands and through his feet to that cross and lifted that thing and just dropped it into place. And the agonizing death of somebody on a cross, I could not imagine dying in, in that way. Crucifixion was one of, the, one of the worst forms of punishment that the Romans had to, to, to punish and to kill their, their worst offenders. The agonizing death of hanging on that cross. You didn't die from exposure. You died from the fact that you could, not, you could no longer take a breath. Your arms would sag down so far that you couldn't lift yourself up any higher because of the pain. And eventually, they, the, the, the person that was hanging there would asphyxiate. I don't know how high Jesus was up on the cross. They took his body down off, and obviously for them to be able to take his body down, he had to be low enough to the ground. But they say that many times what would happen is the dogs would come as their bodies were hanging and start to eat the bodies off of the cross. But then to make sure that they were dead, they would go and they'd break the legs of those criminals. And why would they break the legs? Because here what they're doing is pushing themselves up with everything they have just to get a breath. And then they would start to sag and sag and sag and sag and sag. And eventually they couldn't take a breath anymore. And so they would muster everything that they had with those nails through their feet and push themselves up just to take a breath. And they would start to do that same process over and over and over and over again until eventually they died. But when they were ready for them to finally die, they went and they broke their legs so they could no longer push themselves up. The Bible says in Psalms, in a prophetic way, that not one bone of Jesus was broken. And what an interesting thing that was, because they did that to both of those that were crucified on either side of him. But when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. And so what did they do? They took that spear and they shoved it up into his side. And the Bible says the blood and water came out. That's what Jesus Christ did for you. That's what Jesus Christ did for me. That's what we're remembering here tonight. He broke. His body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. Had he not done that, there would be no salvation. Had he not done that, there would be no redemption. Had he not done that, we would have no hope of eternal life. Had he not done that, there would probably be no hope in this life. But what a great hope it is because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And I believe that that God did this as a way for us to not only remember what he's done on the cross for us, but to give us a time where we stop and think and confess our sins before him. And so as we always do, I'm going to have a time of invitation here. I'm going to uh, ask Miss Becca to come up to the piano. Before we, before we uh, take part in the, the bread and the, and, the, and the juice, this is something very serious that we do before God. We're commanded to do it but we're also commanded not to take it unworthily. And so I believe uh, God did this to give us an opportunity to force ourselves to look inside and get things right with him. And that's what I want to give you an opportunity to do right now. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, you, let, let's stand at our seats. You can stay there at your seat and you, you can kneel there at your seat if you want to. You can come forward and kneel at the front if you want to, however you want to do it. But make sure your heart is right with God. 
don't don't take the Lord's Supper unworthily. What a what a what a grave mistake that would be. As the piano plays, if you want to come, you can come. If you want to kneel there at your seats, you can kneel there at your seats.